You're listening to Myself with Others, and I'm your host, Adam Schatz. My guest on this episode is the singer, songwriter, producer, and artist, Ardo Lindsay. Born in 1953 in Richmond, Virginia, Lindsay moved to Brazil when he was a small child with his parents, who were Presbyterian missionaries. After returning to the States to attend college in New York, he became part of the downtown music and art scene and helped create what became known as No Wave. He was a member of some of the most significant bands of the era, including DNA and the Lounge Lizards. His noisy guitar playing earned him the reputation as the King of Skronk, but over the years he's revealed himself to be one of the great sensualists in contemporary music by creating a distinctive new hybrid of American and Brazilian music with Peter Scher in the band Ambitious Lovers, and in a series of extraordinary avant-pop albums, notably Mundo Civilizado. I love his lyrics. They're playfully fractured, almost like puzzles, and unabashedly erotic. Ardo has worked with some of the signature musicians of his era, John Lurie and John Zorn, Vernon Reed and Bill Frizzell, Caetano Veloso and Nana Vasconcelos, Don Byron and Melvin Gibbs. Not bad for someone who's made a point of not studying his instrument, and turned his lack of skill into an art in itself. In a sense, Ardo is an artist who's chosen to express himself as a songwriter, so it's not surprising that he has also collaborated with visual artists like Vito Acconci, Laurie Anderson, and Rodney Graham. Welcome to Myself with Others, Ardo. Uh, yeah, thank you for that uh, introduction. A, f- a, a couple of corrections. Oh, okay. I never collaborated with Rodney Graham. We planned to do a collaboration and it never came off. And Don Byron and I are friendly, but he played. Doesn't he play? He played on one song on one. On the the rest is all okay. The rest is all you know. Whatever the normal stuff. It's interesting. The word "scronk." I've never been particularly fond of that word. And Robert Criscow came up with that word to describe no wave guitar playing in general. I think, you know. And, uh, and he's written he's written about you for yeah he wrote about uh, he wrote about, very admiringly about Mundo Simplizado yeah and uh, I haven't seen him him in years either but I was a messenger at the Village Voice in the advertising department and uh, I wasn't a glamorous bike messenger I was a I walked around New York you know uh, carrying ads you know delivering ads you know picking up ads really from from yoga studios and, and dance studios and places like that and bringing them back to the paper. And the copy machine, the, the writers tended to just push us out of the way. And I stood up to Chris Cow and told him to wait his place in line and act like, you know, like I expected him from what he wrote. And we became friends. And he took me to a lot of shows, hmm. actually. He took me to, to see Lou Reed at the bottom line. And he got me in to see Jean Gilberto, even though he didn't go with me to that show. Didn't you appear as a messenger in Desperately Seeking Susan? No, I appear as a clerk in the advertising department. I think actually, and this is going to date me, you know, I, was, I was born in 72, and I think that the first time that I saw you was in that film, which came out in the mid-1980s. Right. And you, I think you were in the scene with Madonna. I was in a scene with Madonna. And I had met Madonna because Madonna went out with Jean-Michel for a while, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Who was a good friend of yours. Who was a friend, and, and uh, I had met her through him. 
And that was a moment when the downtown scene was beginning to register with the mainstream. It wasn't just a secret among the people who were part of it. Well, that film, she was not the star of that film. It was supposed to be... It was Roseanne Arquette. She was supposed to be the star. Okay. She was quite upset because as Madonna's fame grew, her role in the movie got bigger. You know? Like, she blew up right as the movie uh, was being made. You know what I'm saying? So they were changing the script and... The woman that was contracted to be the star was angry. In the late 90s, Ardo, I wrote a piece about musicians in the downtown scene who were reclaiming their roots. And I discussed your work at some length. I confess it was an overstatement bordering on error because, of course, you'd been singing in Portuguese since the 1980s. And even the No Wave band that you led with Ikwe Mori, uh, DNA, was a, arguably a New York offshoot of the musical revolution that uh, was launched uh, in Brazil by Caetano, Veloso, Gilberto Gil, Tom Zay, and others. To borrow an expression that George Lewis used in, a, in another episode of this series, your musical language has always been creolized. And Brazil is always there, even if you don't always hear it explicitly. And so I wanted to start by asking you a bit about your Brazilian childhood. You, you got there when you were, what, three years old? Yeah. My parents moved down there and I was three and I grew up there and went to an American high school for foreign students in Brazil. This was in the northeast of Brazil? Yeah. It was in a small town called Garanhuis. Then I went to high school in Recife on the coast of Pernambuco on the, on the northeast where it juts out towards Africa there. So Portuguese wasn't your mother tongue, but it, but it wasn't exactly a second language either. I mean, you, you, were, you were there early enough to be fully bilingual. Yeah. Among your peers, were you seen as American, Brazilian, somewhere in between? I mean, how, how, how were you perceived? Well, definitely in the small town where I grew up, I was seen as an American. But after a while, I was just... Ardo. Ardo, yeah. Right. But I grew up in a, in a small town, and, you know, the interior of Pernambuco in the 50s and early 60s was almost feudal, almost like growing up in the 1890s or something. Parts, in some ways, it was really, really backwards, you know. Well, what kind of, I mean, what, your parents were missionaries. Does that, were they spending all their time proselytizing and converting? No, they, or, didn't, they, no. Didn't, uh, they were educators. Oh, okay. And they worked at a school and they taught different courses. And my dad ran the school for a while. And it was a school that was established by the Southern Presbyterian Church, so to speak, in 1900 when there was only one other school in the entire interior of the state. By the time we moved there, there were state schools, municipal schools, a Catholic girls' school. There had only been a Catholic boys' school and stuff like that. So my dad actively tried to return the administration to the Brazilian church. My dad was, uh, and still is, kind of a left-wing guy in the context of a conservative church. Yeah, and that was my, yeah. my impression. Yeah. So you're born in 1953. You're, you're, you get to Brazil in '56. And this is a period of military dictatorship. It starts right? in 64. Yeah, it starts in 64. Yeah. But I mean, in 64, you're only 11. I'm just wondering, to what extent did you experience that moment? I mean, was it... Well, you know, there are a couple of things about uh, Brazil that don't get mentioned very much, you know? I mean, people always talk about uh, tropicalismo, tropicalism, and, and that. But before that, people that were famous in Brazil were famous to everybody. There was no segmentation or, or by age group. 
everybody loved the same people that were on TV. You know what I'm saying? You mean there was just a, a profound sense of national unity or of, na- of, of a shared nationality? or It, it was just, uh, you know, there wasn't a youth movement. There, so older people could like the first rock and roll. Young people could like people that had been around forever. Lack of, uh, of stratification and separation was uh, great. Hmm. You know, was it? I mean, a, in spite of in spite of the vast class chasm and the racial chasm, you know, which is interesting because you know the, there was a whole literature um, that had become, I think, the conventional wisdom, the dominant thinking in Brazil associated with Gilberto Freire that that Brazil had somehow overcome its racial problem by creating a, a mestizo civilization. And, but my sense is that Brazil is deeply stratified racially. You're right. And Gilberto Freire was a reaction to what came before him, which was a kind of racial purity, eugenicist. So his, so his denial was almost a kind of progressive response to exactly. the overt racism that existed before. Exactly. You know, and then my friends in the tropicalist movement and in the, of the post-tropicalist stripe or whatever, they really clung to this myth of the racial democracy. You know what I mean? For a long time. They wouldn't, as we say in Portuguese, let go of the bone. Was that was that true even of someone like Gilberto Gil, or was it? In, in some ways, yeah. So, so in other words, some of the black members it's, of Tropicalia also bought into the myth. They did, and and there, of course, are true aspects to the myth. It's kind of like Fra- it's kind of like French republicanism. There are aspects of it that are genuinely progressive, and yeah, way in ways like, in which it's very or discriminatory. Even, or even French exceptionalism. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because the resentment of the U.S. was certainly justified. The kind of intellectual dominance of the North, that resentment was justified, you know. But then to see identity politics as just another aspect of that wasn't true, you know. So it was a very complicated thing. You know, I have a uh, a really good friend, his name is Ahmano Viana, who wrote a book about the, the history of samba, which is really interesting and it's about exactly the modernist moment in brazil where Gilberto freire and brazilian modernists are you talking about people like machado assis or is he, he's earlier no he's yeah. earlier i'm talking about people like oswald andrade and these people they interacted with the samba musicians because samba was being formed in the teens and the 20s as a meeting of, of african and european musics for years in interviews i tried to stress this similarity or kinship or whatever between the U.S. and Brazil because people are always opposing them as being completely different, you know. And I always said, no, they're both like based on slavery, basically. Exactly, exactly. You know, in the late 60s, Tropicalismo or or Tropicalia uh, emerges. And partly it's a response to a left-wing, I'm guessing probably Communist Party-associated musical establishment that focused on, that that celebrated folk and roots music um, in a way similar to the American folk establishment that Bob Dylan rebelled against when he went electric. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, it's, but that's one aspect of it because they were also reacting against the uh, conservative culture, the Catholic culture, and they were reacting against what the movements that led to the military coup, you know, that established the dictatorship. In 1964, my father and I, and maybe my brother, we had gone to Recife, the capital of the state, to spend a weekend or something. My dad went downtown, and then he came right back. 
And uh, he said, yeah, there are troops everywhere, you know. And we literally stayed in the yard. of. We were staying with friends. We, we spent the afternoon in the yard listening to hear if we could see, to see if we could hear. Wow, that's a good one. See if we could hear artillery. Wow. We didn't. And then when I went to high school in Musifi a few years later, because the, the dictatorship came in in 64, but in 68, it got much more severe, much more intense. And they started to, you know, censorship, they dissolved Congress, and they started to kidnap, and torture people, and just eliminate the guerrilla groups and stuff, you know. Kind of prefiguring what was happening in other Latin American countries, in Argentina and Chile. Uh, yeah. Wasn't 68 the year that Caetano and Gilberto Gil went to London? Yeah, I think it was. Did you ever read Caetano's book? Yes, years ago. Yeah. It's very well written. Yeah, it's a really good book. And there's one particular chapter that is really great, which is the chapter about his arrest and time in prison. I mean, they were mostly from, I guess, what you call the, mid the Brazilian middle class, not the ultra wealthy. But Well, Caetano's dad worked in the post office. You know, they were lower middle class. I think Gilberto Gil's dad was a doctor. What were you listening to mostly in those days when you were a teenager? My mom had some Nat King Cole records. Uh, my mom was a really good piano player, and she had Debussy and uh, Chopin records. And then I heard they used to play music in the street, like, you know, on market day through loudspeakers up on the phone poles. So they play the local music like Luis Gonzaga and other Fajo and stuff like that. TV arrived in our little town pretty late, and that's when I first heard uh, Caetano and Jorge Bain, stuff like that. My mother also loved João Gilberto and Dorival Caymmi, so I heard those records at home. They weren't the same kind of revelation to me as they were to the Tropicalists proper because I was 10 years younger than they were, and I just kind of accepted that sort of sophistication as being natural as a, instead of being such a rupture. But, you know, then, then I started to listen to, like, the Beatles and, like, lots of Hendrix. I had a couple friends whose dad was in the Peace Corps, and they came from Santa Cruz, I think, in California, you know, and so they brought all this, all these records. And what about Sly and the Family Stone and Miles? Because I gather you were listening to, to them and also to a Marvin Gaye. Yeah, that was, that was more later. once I got to college. Early whalers. I mean, you know, then at that point, Mark Cunningham, he and I kind of educated ourselves by buying records. And we started in college and we kept kept it up here. You know, what we, school was this? We went to a school called Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. I actually tried to leave after two years, but I would have been drafted, so I stayed. From the interviews that I've read with you, I, I get the sense that when you first got to the States, you had it in mind to become an artist of some kind, but it wasn't clear what kind of artist you would become. I mean, you, you, you've talked about your interest in Vito Akanshi and Chris Burden and Yvonne Rayner's films, and, and yet, in the end, you did choose music. So I'm curious how that happened. Well, music was happening at that point, and that's where the real vitality was. We started to go to CBGBs and hear all these bands, and it seemed like you could sort of put all these interests together in a, in a music performance. And we didn't even think about recording at that point. Did you move to New York just after college? Yeah. I, I'm curious how you were making ends meet. I, I read that you worked as a nude model at some point. That's true. Was that to make a living? Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, to make a living, to pay for the pizza and, 
and the Twinkies or whatever we survived on, you know. Where were you living then? On the Lower East Side, you know, in various apartments, <laughs> moving around, you know. Were, now, did you attend lectures by Morton Feldman while you were No, living? you know, actually, you Sumner Crane from Mars introduced me to all kinds of stuff. And he had gone to, I think it's called the Studio School on 8th Street, which is where I worked. And Morton Feldman and Cage had given lectures there. During the years of the New York School. During the years of, uh, I forget what the name of that school is right now. But anyway, you know, they did radio shows together, but they also gave lectures there, you know. So he hipped me to that or whatever, you know. And he was, he had these really interesting obsessions, Sumner. He was really, really brilliant. And he uh, he was obsessed with Monk. uh, And uh, Monk was kind of a touchstone to our generation, you know what I mean? And um, he was also obsessed with Guy, I believe Guy's name was Jack Kirby, who was a cartoonist like drew comic books yeah Sumner was a really brilliant guy at one point Sumner suggested that we make art under a common pseudonym um, Rudolph Gray from Blue Humans and Sumner and I so we each did stuff and then we exhibited it once at Danceteria I got us a show at Danceteria and that's where I met Madonna because <laughs> show. he used to hang out there Basquiat, didn't he hang out at Danceteria? Sure, but yeah. I mean, everybody, I mean, whatever. Everyone did. Everyone yeah. did at that point. So he brought her, that's the one time I met her before the second time, second and only other time I met her at, at the movie, but um, uh, on the set. But yeah, I tried to talk Tony Shafrazi into... The gallerist? Yeah, into showing us, but he didn't, like, I didn't manage to. Were you playing guitar by then? Yeah, I mean, that was after DNA started, I guess. Right. Right, because you started DNA not long after you began to play guitar, right? Sort of simultaneously. You formed it with Ikwe Mori and, and Robin Crutchfield. How did that come about? There was a guy called Terry Ork who was booking Maxis. He also had a label. I think he put out the first television single, was managing television, I believe. And he just kind of noticed that I was around and he's like, hey, when does your band want to play? He said, next week or next month and I went oh uh, next month I didn't have a band so then I just I met Ikawe and I asked her and said do you want to play drums and she had never played drums and Crutchfield was a really striking figure and I thought I would put together kind of the most visually striking group and there was a photo that that Robin had taken which was everywhere at that time and uh, it was himself with the shirt off and with these dolls taped to his torso. And he was so sexually ambiguous, you know, in a really interesting way. And I thought, wow, you know, this is just like an opening up somehow, visual broaden the, the horizons or something if you look at this group of, of people. And um, yeah, so that, that was it. And then, then I got a guitar. Maybe I had a guitar before then. I had also done... Because Mark and Connie Berg, they had met Sumner Crane, and they had started with Nancy Arlen Mars. And that's how Terry saw me, because I was just helping them and stuff. Yeah, I just put this band together, like, kind of on instinct, you know, and because I... But I had done jam sessions with, with John Lurie, with James Nairs, Jamie, now Jamie Nairs, with, yeah. with Seth Tillett, with uh, James Chance. I mean, you're playing this instrument that you didn't and still don't know how to properly play. I, I get the impression it's a decision too, right? It's definitely a decision. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would 
would agree with your characterization of properly, but go ahead. Well, I mean, when I say that, I mean, I'm putting that in quotation marks. Yes. But I mean, you've created the sound that's, you know, totally, you know, it's utterly identifiable. Um, I'm just curious how that turned into a commitment and an ethic in a way, like I'm going to play this instrument the way that I play it. I'm not going to learn how to play it in a, in a conventional manner. Were you afraid that the kind of playing you were doing would be infected if you learn to play it in a conventional manner? No, I, w I guess I would, I was hoping it would remain infectious. No, but uh, <laughs> I thought of samba schools and what they sound like. And I also, I, I just figured that there was free jazz guitar out there, you know, that there must be people. We had people like Sonny Sharrock. Yeah, but um, I had never heard them until I read myself compared to them. Somebody early on, really early on, compared me to Sonny Sharrock and to um, Fred Frith. And I had no idea what those guys sounded like. I didn't know anything about Derek Bailey and Derek that Bailey. whole world. Okay. That was came later. Hendrix was a real touchstone, you know, and Electric and, Miles and, and, with, and, with Pete Cozy and all that stuff. Right, so, and Hendrix himself had taught himself to play in this incredibly unusual... I mean, he, right? I mean, he was a virtuoso, obviously. Right. But he started out by experimenting with sound at home. And, and right. he, was a, he, was a, he was a tinkerer. Yeah, well, I was really happy when I when I when I found a picture of him playing at Dan Electro, and then the other day I found a picture of him with him with glasses on. Apparently, he was he really needed glasses, but he wouldn't wear them. I mean, was it was it? So I guess it must have been around this time that you were listening to those Electric Miles records with Pete Cozy things, because like, I I I saw well, that you, I heard him a bunch. You heard him? You know, oh yeah, because you went to see Miles play then, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, I mean that must have been. We saw them many times. I mean, Mark and I even saw them in. When we were in college in Florida, we came up and saw him at the Village of Gogo, I think it was called. Long, narrow club. It was kind of amazing because we got there and they were playing, you know, jazz style, like several sets in a small club. And this is Miles, you know. All the tables at one end were, were full. And we had to walk literally in front of the band to get to the tables in the back that were empty. And uh, so we had to walk by the band, you know. It was like so intense. And afterwards, I spoke to Ayuso Moreira, who was in the band at that time, you know, and I didn't know, I didn't expect him, you know, and then I'm like a Brazilian, you know, it was kind of, yeah, that was an intense set. I, I, I guess it was Jack Dijonet. I can't remember. I should try to find out who was in that show. It might have been the time that Keith Jarrett was playing piano in the band, or was it a bit late, or this was a bit late. It was around, yeah, around you know. Time. You know, you, I saw. I saw you. It's were... interesting how good Keith Jarrett was in that band, and how how useless he is outside that band. Excuse me. <laughs> I, I totally agree. <laughs> Somewhere you you said that your two favorite Miles records were Kind of Blue and um, and On the Corner, and I thought that was this. It just struck me because they they seem to kind of reflect two aspects of your own aesthetic. I mean, this Kind of Blue is almost the more like classical Brazilian side and this the cool the spelt nature and I wonder then, when and I then, would have said and that, then on the yeah. corner is this you know I mean what's the box set that starts with he loved him madly yeah that's that's on get up with it yeah that's kind of my favorite for the last few years you know and actually for years I had a trio with Melvin Gibbs and Dougie Bound and that was kind of between that record and the meters that was where we would have liked to have been situated, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> do, you, do you think that this, I don't want to call it a, a, a lack of skill because it's not a lack of skill, but do you think this 
this highly unorthodox approach to an instrument can be kind of, I don't know, it can be enabling. I mean, it's, it seems as though it, it allowed you to get somewhere that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I mean, any restraint is enabling, right? I mean, yeah. It sounds like wow. a, it, it sounds like a, like a kind of a pledge of S and M or something, you know, an S and M pledge. <laughs> any any restraint, any restraint is enabling right. or whatever. Musical BDSM. Um, Last night, I I revisited in preparation for our conversation. I revisited this film that I hadn't seen in years called Downtown 81, the, the Glenn O'Brien mm-hmm. film um, uh, starring a, a young uh, Basquiat um, and DNA is performing. I don't know, was that at the Mud Club? Um, no, we performed actually in uh, Vanguard Studios on 23rd Street, which no longer exists. Oh, okay. It was an incredible studio, huge room. Let's listen to a little bit of it. this scene you know we see Basquiat spraying graffiti on a wall while you're playing and the impression is that you're both in this montage that you're both drawing inspiration from one another and and it just seems it seems as though no wave and the art of that era had a kind of like a symbiosis in the way that you know abstract expressionism and and jazz had a few decades earlier Uh, was there do you feel that there was some kind of synergy going on with the music that you were making and the visual art that people like Basquiat were making they were both happening at the same time. So they were reacting to a lot of the same things. Basquiat's art, you know, he came from a community, but then he created something personal, different, you know. Um, nobody else that came from that community, and it was a community, created what he did. So. Um, did you get to know him well? I knew him well, yeah, but at different times. As he was becoming a painter, you know what I'm saying? And then a couple of times during that, you know, to look beyond Basquiat, you know, it's like, it, well, no, just, just, just hip hop, you know, was happening in the Bronx when we were happening downtown. So it's like, here we are, these white college kids mostly, or disaffected white youth, right? We trying hard to, you know, break through and uh, create something new. At the same time, kind of without any of that baggage, kids are creating something absolutely new in the Bronx. Things like Africa Bombada and, and Fab Freddy and others. And... Man, Fab Freddy, no. But all the guys that actually, names I rattle off, but, you know, that, that uh, started to play records and, and, right. and talk over them and then, you know, had radio shows and, you know, and started uh, repeating the drum breaks and all this stuff was happening. That was simultaneous. Which has enormous 
and enduring consequences for music. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about the music in the 80s, how baseless it is and how squeaky tight it is and how everybody was kind of trying to achieve some kind of perfection. Uh, how there's music before and after a click track and, you know, music singing before and after drum machines, the sound of records before and after sampling and to some extent, noise music, how imperfection became proof of authenticity or something, you know, and all these things that happened over the course of those years. I mean, you know, you, you talked about how it was all of a response to, and people were obviously coming from very different communities, different social classes, racial groups, and so on. But, you know, they were all living in New York City in the years after the financial crisis, and downtown looked pretty bombed out racism poverty drugs it was a pretty tough era although it gets romanticized it was very tough and to romanticize other people's poverty is despicable to think oh wasn't it great back then you know what i mean when junkies roamed the streets well what about the junkies i've never been able to stomach that 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 attitude towards those years but at the, at the same time the degree of creative ferment and... Do you know Kip Hanrahan's work? Sure, sure. Right, so Kip, you know, put together these really interesting sessions with all these really disparate uh, musicians. In a sense, everybody was sort of crowded up against each other in a way that they no longer are. You know, now everybody's aware of each other and able to listen to each other and, you know, we can listen to what's going on in Cairo easily or whatever. And just go on Spotify or iTunes. You can yeah. Hear it, but do you know Radio Garden? You know, the it's a site where you can I just... I do. Yeah. Where you can go to any different region of the world and listen to the music. Yeah. Yeah. You can it's, just sit through the radio stations and all over yeah. the place. The, that, those, yeah. those shows are incredible. And people really specialize this in this, you know. and uh, Right. I mean, we have such instant access to that vast world of music. And yet at the same time, what I think you're saying is that people tend to confine themselves to their own small musical worlds and not relate quite as much as they were doing. Well, you, I don't know. For some reason, just the communities don't interact so much these days, you know, or when they do, it's kind of, uh, there's a foregone conclusion there somehow, you know, I don't know. I think I'm talking about Manhattan itself. You know, Manhattan used to actually be much messier. You met John Lurie around this time too, in the early eighties, or did you meet him earlier? I met him in the late seventies. I mean, but, and then you became part of the Lounge Lizards with him. We played together before that too. Yeah. We're friends, yeah. But that first Lounge Lizards album was produced by—I'd forgotten—it's produced by Tio Macero. Yeah. Who, of course, produced all those incredible Electric Miles records. I mean, well, of course, he'd been working with Miles for many years, and it produced work by Mingus and many others, and. And Macero, I believe, studied with Edgar Varese. Yes. And he was a really accomplished composer in his own right. What was it like working with Tio? He was a producer, you know. The other day I noticed that he produced Addicted to Love, Robert Palmer. Right. Who was a singer that I've always enjoyed. You know, he was a staff producer, but he was a, a brilliant guy. You know, and he was very uh, encouraging, you know, and... Um, yeah, I was I was really sick during those sessions. I had like a bad flu. Yeah, when you hear the record, the record is not particularly brilliantly mixed. 
it's pretty light. It's pretty much of its time. I think there was some controversy as to the volume of my guitar, whether it should be louder or softer or something, but I am not too clear on all this. After I left the Lizards, he hired them to do a project of, with the London Philharmonic to play his music, I think. He had them on record, I believe. But yeah, Tio, uh, Kip became close to Tio, you know, and uh, I wished I had spent more time with him just listening to him because he, you know, that, that a lot of those Electric Miles records, uh, he cut together, you know, and, and made loops and stuff. And For In a Silent Way, I think he only used about 15 minutes of music to make the entire record. Right. I mean, he, I mean, he is in a way a co-composer of that album. Absolutely. After DNA and the Lounge Lizards, you teamed up with the Swiss keyboardist Peter Scherer. And Scherer was a highly trained musician, composer. I think he, he studied with Ligeti. He did, he, and he studied at the conservatory in Zurich, and he studied uh, electronic music here, I think, at Brooklyn College. But then I think he began to, to work with Niles Rogers of Chic. Niles Rogers. Well, he actually, yeah, he did. He, he, but he was Niles' Synclavier technician. Nile was one of the first people to get a Synclavier, you know, which was one of the first sampling keyboards. And uh, I think Stevie Wonder had one. I think Pat Metheny had one. You know, these things were really expensive. They broke down constantly. And, and you had sort of had to, everything you did, you had to save immediately. You know, and they used these big floppy disks. Eventually, Peter and I bought one, which we never paid off. And then he managed to uh, donate it somewhere and get a tax break and like <laughs> break even on the thing, you know. Yeah, he played with Kashif, who was a big R&B star at that time. I got a chance to make a solo record, and um, I wanted to work with somebody with those kinds of skills, and we hit it off on the first record, and then we formed a band, made a few records, and did dance scores, and did commercials, and produced people. And, we and, did a lot and of stuff Melvin together. Gibbs played with the group. He did. Melvin played with us. Because um, I think he had he had overheard you playing with DNA during the he rehearsal. He knew DNA and I knew uh, his playing, you know, and I tracked him down when I wanted to start a group. Because he's been one of your most, one of your key collaborators over the years. Yeah. Yeah. He is my closest collaborator and we've been working together for the longest time. What do you think uh, makes it such a effective relationship? I mean, he's a great, he's a great bassist, obviously. He's a great bassist. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've made many trips to Brazil together, and uh, so he's had a chance to participate in, in Brazilian culture, not just in um, recordings with all kinds of Brazilian musicians, but in participate in Carnival and Bahia. You so know. not in a superficial way. He's really kind of no. understood the sound world that you come out Yeah, of. he's also really interested in not just music. You know? and, he's, and he writes. I mean, Melvin writes Really good well. writer. You know, and, and I think he's uh, got literary interest, as do you. I mean, I you. I yeah, think... I mean, we're it's like mutual admiration, at least from my side. <laughs> I don't really know. You know, it's like we've just been doing this for so long, and it's like we, you know. But there have been breaks. You know, at a certain point, I thought, can I do anything without working with Melvin? You know, but then he played with Henry Rollins for a few years, and he went off on the on the on the road with like you know big rock bands and with a big rock band and stuff and. Uh, but then you started working together again. Yeah, but I sort of had to prove that I could do it without him. Yeah. Your your first album with Ambitious Lovers, um, Envy, came out in 1984. Let's listen to the song Cross Your Legs. Where am I?
So, you know, you, you were writing your first Brazilian flavored songs, to put it pretty broadly, when you formed uh, Ambitious Lovers. And I, I read somewhere that in the year before, you had essentially sat down at home and listened to samba records and sung along with them. Is that true? You know, I it's at a certain point, like you were talking before about guitar playing restraint and um, not learning how to play the guitar. And that was a conscious decision. And then it was also a conscious decision to stick to it, you know. But at a certain point, I thought, well, I'll learn, try to learn how to sing. And I started by listening to these um, samba records. Not by great singers, but by great... You, you wanted them to be more approachable? No, I just, or... <laughs> it was just kind of what happened is the records that I loved, um, the records that I had, had access to at that moment, living in New York, you know. One was a Noel Hosa record where he sings his own songs and he's not much of a singer. One was a singer by Mario Hayes, who, you know, was more about phrasing of uh, short notes than about other kinds of singing, you know what I mean? And um, Catola, who's a great, uh, another great samba composer, singing his own material. And I, and I had a friend, uh, Tony Nogueira, and he and I started to do things together. Um, we're actually in this kitchen uh, video made by the, the kitchen called Two Moon July. And, uh, you know, it's got like John and Evan, and it's got Bill Jones, and I guess David Byrne, maybe Laurie Anderson, whatever. It's like Philip Glass, whatever. It's like kitchen vibe. I'm singing a Brazilian song with just a surdo and me. And then I had a group with uh, Frizzell and, and Joey Barron. And we did only old Brazilian songs for a little while. We did like four or five gigs, you know, and so I was trying to... Is that recorded? No, that's not recorded. There is a track on an Ambitious Lovers record that's that right. group plus plus uh, Peter. Robert Criscow, whom you mentioned earlier, said says somewhere that even when you were, I'm quoting, an enraged and alienated no-wave mutant there was wit and rhythm in your in your tantrums and that it was only a few years after you unveiled DNA that the shy, and I'm quoting again, the shy, suave, calculated lover boy bowed as a crooner. Wow. Yeah. Um, this was in a piece praising uh, Mundo Civilizado. And, but it also gets us to kind of an important point. Must about, be fun to be a writer, huh? You yeah. write that stuff. <laughs> but it, it does get to an important theme of your work, which is sex. The early work is often linked to punk. My sense, and I could be wrong, is that your stronger influences as a, as a singer have been people like Marvin Gaye and Al Green or, or Jean Gilberto, Jorge Ben, Jorge Ben, and, and Caetano. And, and all of these singers have a strong sense of sensuality. And many of them come, yeah, out, of the, many of them come I, out of the church, just as you did. Yeah, I mean, well, it's just kind of an open secret, right? The church is just sex, right? Anyway, um... You got this like naked guy hanging up there on you know on a cross bleeding. I mean, come on. But anyway, uh, sorry about that, Dad. But um, uh, pop music, you know, what I'm saying rock and roll, samba, soul, blues. I mean, it just seems to be the the content is about human contact and about human 
yearning or whatever you know what i'm saying and Hunger, it's like need and, and yeah desire. you know what i'm saying and also you know facing nothing or something facing the nothingness this is your basic human stuff and sex is not only content but sex is form you know so sex is the form of facing the nothing sounds very freudian hey you know what i tell you i'm warming up before it's like all this hemming and hawing but you know just use like half an hour in to it'll be a lot I think better i think you're doing well i think you started well <laughs> you know you, you you wrote somewhere that that bossa nova was a radical music for brazilians and not a, not you know not a lounge music because it abstracted the samba beat and incorporate right. incorporated influences from wc and classical impressionism kind of in the way that miles davis and gil evans did with cool jazz um and you, you've also talked a lot about how brazilian music works by implication right. um I, I think that you were trying to do some of these things as early as ambitious lovers but i wonder how many people were aware of how deeply imprinted that music was by these brazilian influences do you think that was understood at the time i mean for one thing i think that these principles or whatever you know methods or something you're you're describing i think that they are common to many kinds of music and i think i learned them in brazilian music or through brazilian music yeah i i certainly but i'm thinking of I, that. you know the idea that that bossa nova is a was a radical break it what that, i didn't come up with that idea oh no it's like no obviously that's kind of what that's 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 uh, that's just music history yeah that's music history right. you know but I think what sometimes American, like American listeners, will hear bossa nova and they don't understand. They, they they're not going to hear that break. They'll just hear it as music that's very seductive and appealing and relaxing. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably have quoted this before, but somewhere on YouTube there's an interview with Miles, and he says, yeah, you know, whatever. I won't do a Miles imitation, but he says something like, uh, you know, white people they think all you need to do is to sing behind the beat, you know, but you got to goose those slow tempos and try to translate goose, the verb, into Portuguese. It's really hard. But that's the thing about João Gilberto. That's also true of Miles. It's true of Jimmy Scott or whatever. You know what I mean? Different people. Billy Holiday, certainly. When you sing slow, you can't let up. You have to push it. You know, have to lean to the forward side of the beat sometimes. You know what I mean? To keep it keep it alive, you know, because it's, it, you know, it... Uh, wilts easily or something you know what i'm saying yeah it was interesting to me that the the billy holiday record that you cited as being maybe your favorite in an interview was her her late album lady and i think it might have been her last album lady in satin which so many critics have tended to dismiss because you know her voice was failing at the time but i'm curious about that But singers you know we're like athletes in other words our instrument uh over time the muscles will slacken so you have to proceed by by implication. Think about Jimmy Scott at the end of his life, you know. Think about Chet Baker at the end of his life. I heard Chet Baker a few times, and I heard him on Bleecker Street, upstairs in this kind of restaurant club, you know what I'm saying? And he was really ravaged, and he kept going to the bathroom between songs, you know. I wonder why. Yeah, you know, so he was, like, not in good shape, and... Um, you know, sometimes he couldn't hit a note, but he, you you knew he could sort of point at the note. That last Billie Holiday record is amazing because singing itself, if you pay attention to your singing, you just get better and better. You know, I love singers, you know, and uh, Young Thug 
is such an interesting uh, musician, the rapper. He's mm -hmm. like uh, so eccentric, his singing and stuff, you know what I mean? And now he's kind of backed off a little bit from forcing the issue, so to speak. Now he's also pushing these younger guys, this guy Gunna, and I forget the name of the other guy, you know, who are kind of like him, but they're closer to conventional singing. And that's a very interesting thing that's happening with singing right now. I remember you had a, you, you were really intensely absorbed in D'Angelo for a while, weren't you? Yeah. When, I mean, when Voodoo came out, who, who wasn't? Who wasn't, you know what I mean? Did you see the Versus D'Angelo? That was so interesting. You know, Versus is the, uh, it's an Instagram series started by Timbaland and Swiss Beats during the pandemic. And basically it started out to be like two stars. Each person plays their records, some kind of face-off or something. And uh, Snoop Dogg did one, you know, but they're, you know, and then it's like, and then they kind of challenge each other, but at the same time they go, I love that song of yours when it came out, you know, and it goes on and on and they drink or whatever, they get high and it's really loose. And the only one that did a solo was with D'Angelo, you know, like singing along with his records and starting to really enjoy it. You know what I'm saying? Wow. It's so interesting. I think I remember you saying something about about Voodoo, though, in particular, though, because he created this record. It's, I don't know, it's 70 minutes long and there aren't exactly songs on it, but it's utterly riveting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are a few songs, of course. There are songs, but they're just kind of loose. But he's such an amazing uh Singer, that record is incredible, you know, and the way that record came together. And uh, the way it sounds, you know, basically, is like, it's it was a paradigm shift, you know, the way that they they got that record to sound. So, you know, Questlove was the drummer on a lot of that, and, you know, it's like, was Roy he... Roy Hargrove plays on it. Yeah, but I mean, Questlove is like, he kept telling me to play wrong, and I'm like, no, my friends are going to think I can't play, you know, but he's like, no. So this is D'Angelo telling him to and of course, Jay Dilla was the big influence on those guys, you know, like the kind of imperfect, uh, imperfect, 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 but sublime. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the feel you want has to incorporate some imperfection, you know what I mean? to the first part of Arto Lindsay's conversation with Adam Schatz on Myself with Others. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. The music for this episode is composed and performed by Richard Sears with additional selections by Arto Lindsay. Thank you for listening and please subscribe. Subscribe.